This episode is brought to you by TravelZoo. Their curated travel experiences and free membership can help you quench your wanderlust. Welcome to Skim This. What's up with people trying to end 2021 on a crazy note? We've got people in Congress tweeting violent anime videos and getting in trouble for it. We've got Elon Musk doing the absolute most on Twitter. But when you're one of the richest people in the world, I guess who cares? And overseas, the OG bad boy Vladimir Putin is digging out his old playbook and trying to create chaos in Eastern Europe and in space. And besides telling you about this week's bad boys, we've got the latest on missing Chinese tennis star Peng Shui, the backstory on Native American boarding schools that's taken almost a century to come to light, and we'll top things off by hearing from a few doctors about their Thanksgiving plans, which thankfully look a lot different than last year. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. All right, let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up, if you thought you had big meetings on a Monday. Good evening to everyone here in the United States and good morning to you, Mr. President in Beijing. Turns out video diplomacy is still a thing. President Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping held a virtual summit this week. In Biden's words, To ensure that the competition between our countries does not veer into conflict, whether intended or unintended. That's important, because even though the U.S. and China are working together on climate change, talk of tensions turning into all-out conflict have been pretty common lately. U.S.-China relations got a lot worse under President Trump, who started a trade war with China. And things got so bad near the end of Trump's time in office that the highest-ranking member of the U.S. armed forces said that in certain moments, he was scared that an all-out war could break out. Fast forward to this week's meeting, and Biden and Xi didn't commit to much. Biden raised human rights concerns and asked Xi to respect the independence of Taiwan. And Xi asked Biden to let China handle human rights by itself and not interfere when it comes to Taiwan, which China says is part of its territory. Analysts are saying the meeting did set a cordial tone, which is kind of necessary because the stakes around Taiwan couldn't be higher. President Biden recently said that the U.S. has a commitment to defend Taiwan if it were to be invaded, which is a nice sentiment until you realize defending Taiwan against the Chinese military could spark a serious war. All of which means she and Biden pledging to cooperate with one another, even if they didn't set firm goals, might be enough to hit reset on the relationship after a few turbulent years. Speaking of China, if you follow tennis star Naomi Osaka, you might have heard her talking about this next story. Growing concern about a tennis star who has not been seen or heard from after accusing a former Chinese leader of sexual assault. Here's the context. Earlier this month, Chinese tennis star Peng Shui served up an allegation that took China by storm. Posting on China's version of Twitter, called Weibo, she claimed to have been assaulted by Zheng Gao Li, a former top official in the Chinese Communist Party. Shui said her and Zhang, who's now in his 70s, had been in a relationship for several years, and that at some point, he invited her to his house, where he then forced her to have sex with him. International observers noted that Shui's claim was the first time such a senior figure in China had been the subject of a Me Too allegation. But China's notoriously strict online censors didn't seem thrilled that one of the country's top celebrities was accusing a top politician of abuse. Within minutes, Shui's post was taken down, and even searches for tennis were temporarily blocked. 
And in the weeks since, the mystery around this story has only increased. The Women's Tennis Association has demanded answers from China and implied that it might stop doing business in China if Shuai's claims weren't taken seriously. That hasn't happened, and when asked by journalists whether they're looking into the issue, top Chinese officials have claimed to not even be familiar with the story. Meanwhile, Shuai hasn't been seen or heard from in weeks, raising concerns about her safety. Those concerns hardly went away this week, when Chinese state media released what it claimed to be a letter from Shuai, in which she took back all of her claims, said she was resting at home, and that everything is fine. The Women's Tennis Association has said they don't think this letter could possibly be real, but for now, that's all we know. We'll keep you posted if, and hopefully when, we learn that Shuai is actually okay. Next, if you've been doing your holiday shopping early this year, you're not the only one. America won't stop spending. According to new government data released this week, U.S. retail spending has increased for the third month in a row. In fact, despite rising inflation, potential supply shortages, and long delivery times, Americans are still hitting add to cart. That's largely due to people putting away some money during the pandemic, plus wages increasing as employers scramble to fill open positions. Although experts don't expect this to last. Prices this October are about 6% higher than a year ago, the biggest inflation jump since the 1990s, meaning nobody's sure how long it'll be before people have to start cutting back. And our final headline this week? The House has resolved that Representative Paul Gosar of Arizona be censured. This week, the House voted almost along party lines to censure one of its Republican members, Representative Paul Gosar from Arizona. Quick note. Centering a lawmaker is basically the harshest punishment they can receive from their colleagues, besides being expelled from Congress. And it means he's losing his seat on congressional committees, which politicians fight pretty hard to win. So why was he censured? Last week, Gosar posted an animated video on social media of him killing Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and assaulting President Biden. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said this threat was the equivalent of workplace harassment, Because reminder, Congress is a workplace, even if sometimes it feels more like a circus. Yes, you have a right to speak. And so do we have a right to react to what you are saying when you are threatening the lives of members of Congress and the President of the United States. On the other side, Republican House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is implying this censure is politically motivated. This vote isn't about a video, it's about control. That's the one and only thing Democrats are interested in. In a sign of the deep partisan divisions in Congress, just two of the more than 200 Republicans in the House voted to censure Gosar. And political divisions could get worse from here. Frustrated with this week's vote, McCarthy warned Democrats that if and when Republicans take back control of the House, they won't be afraid to remove Democrats from their committee seats. So stay tuned, because this political showdown is only going to continue. All right, we need to talk about Vladimir Putin for a second. Russia's president is causing all sorts of trouble this month, and then doing that thing where he says, me acting up is actually your fault. There are three stories we're talking about here. First, we talked last week about a border crisis between Poland, an EU country, and Belarus, which has close ties to Russia. Belarus has reportedly been flying in desperate migrants, fleeing conflict from places like Iraq and Syria, and then pushing them to the border with Poland, where they're stopped. 
Putin's denied encouraging this, but some see Putin's fingerprints all over this manufactured crisis. That's because if the migrants do get into the EU, it could deepen already intense political divisions over refugees. And if they're turned away, the EU, which has sanctioned Belarus a lot in recent years, might look like the bad guy responsible for denying entry to desperate migrants. Putin's second bit of bad behavior lately has to do with Ukraine, which, remember, Russia basically invaded in 2014. Now, leaders from Ukraine and NATO worry Russia might be back for more, amid reports that tens of thousands of Russian troops are assembling near Ukraine's borders. Putin said over the weekend, hey, don't be alarmist about this story, but that's not much of a reassurance. And third and finally, Putin got so worked up this week, he literally needed to blow something up. This morning, outrage from U.S. officials after Russia carried out a missile test. On Monday, Russia's military reportedly tested out some flashy new tech by using a missile to blow up a satellite in space. An impressive sight, but also created a giant and potentially deadly risk for astronauts, including Russians at the International Space Station. They'll now have to worry about thousands of pieces of exploded satellite debris that are now zipping around in orbit and won't go away anytime soon. Remember the film Gravity? Well, we have a full-on chain reaction. It's been confirmed that it's the unintentional side effect of the Russians striking one of their own satellites. So what's the end game of all this bad behavior? To get one expert's take, we called up John E. Herbst. He's the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine and currently the senior director of the Eurasia Center at the Atlantic Council, a foreign policy think tank. So we just recapped three headlines, all of which look like they have Putin's fingerprints on it. Do you agree with that? And if so, what's in this for Putin? Well, I agree that all of these steps would require his OK. And maybe it was even his idea in each or most of these cases. And I think there's definitely a connection between the crises on the Polish-Belarus border and the Russian military buildup along Ukraine's border in two ways. One, each is an example of the Kremlin testing the Western response to provocations. Two, while they have separate origins, the two crises, they both relate to an aggressive Russian foreign policy. I would not lump the shooting down of the satellite in this same basket, although it was a provocative action, but for very different purposes. I think, A, they wanted to test their capacity, and B, they were confident that the test would be successful, and that would demonstrate to the world, and especially to the United States, that they have this capacity. And what is kind of the logic of having multiple kind of chaotic situations unfolding all at once? Do you think that part of this could be him trying to distract countries and overwhelm them as they choose what's most important to respond to? Well, I think that there's, there's a real logic to your question. I think for Putin, the, he's watching how the West can manage both issues, Ukraine, Belarus, to see if somehow this could strengthen his hand vis-a-vis Ukraine. Because he's, he's got a seven-year problem in Ukraine. The war he's been conducting in Donbass has not gone well for him. And instead, he's got sanctions, which cost his economy real money. And he's trying to figure out a way to end the stalemate in Ukraine, which is a stalemate to his disadvantage. They're testing West's ability to respond to provocations. So that gives them information which they might find useful in the future as they consider additional provocative action. And it's easy for Moscow to step back in both cases, right? 
there's little cost for these provocations. I mean, we've seen a buildup along the border with Ukraine, but they can always build down. And I'm curious, just from your perspective, you know, how would you explain the significance of Putin testing these waters right now to like an everyday American who, you know, might not be thinking about foreign policy in their day to day? Look, average Americans right now are suffering from major inflation, from supply problems, from rising gas prices. And I can tell you this, if Moscow were to succeed with an escalation in Ukraine, that would make the chances of real war, of expanded war in Europe, that much higher. So it's in the great interest of your average American that the United States, to the extent that it can, confronts successfully aggression overseas and restores order. Because American prosperity is directly related to the absence of war, major war, to a global economic system where rules count. John Herbst, thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Okay, here we go. This week, President Biden signed the infrastructure bill into law. Yeah. yeah. Bravo. Now, Democrats are going on a roadshow and planning a thousand events by the end of the year to talk about what this bill means for Americans. One person leading that roadshow is a familiar face who's used to going out and working a crowd. My name is Pete Buttigieg. They call me Mayor Pete. I'm a proud son of South Bend, Indiana, and I am running for president of the United States. Pete Buttigieg is now transportation secretary, and he is one of the primary people responsible for doling out the cash in this bill, which means he's under a lot of pressure, including from his own party. This is one of the biggest wins the Biden administration has had since taking office, and it's his job to make sure Americans understand that. Not to mention, Republicans are going to have it out for him because they may try to make the case that this bill is going to favor infrastructure upgrades in Democratic states. Now, Buttigieg is about to hit the road, so we called him up to hear his pitch. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, can you please skim for me what is in this infrastructure bill in about 60 seconds? Yeah, I'll tell you, it's hard to cover everything that's in this infrastructure law in a a minute or less. But the the big picture is this is going to improve our roads and bridges, our ports and airports, our trains and transit, everything Americans count on to get people and goods where they need to be. And we also recognize that infrastructure includes things like the electric grid, uh, things like clean, safe drinking water, things like getting everybody on the Internet. And so there are resources for that in this bill, too. It's a historic bipartisan victory, the most we've done in generations for American infrastructure. And my department is excited to get to work getting those resources out to the communities where they're going to do a lot of good. What does this bill mean for someone in our millennial audience in one year from now, five years from now, and 10 years from now? One reason I think this legislation means so much for millennials is it's really about the long run. Yes, it's going to have some immediate effects. I mean, we're going to see dollars flow into programs that we're running right now and just grow them. But it's not about an economic stimulus to get through the next few months. It's about positioning America to compete and win and succeed really through the rest of this half century that we're living in. Look, if if you're part of the millennial generation as I am, then We've actually never lived through a major national investment in infrastructure. We haven't had anything close to this level really since the Eisenhower years. And arguably, 
This goes even further than that. So what it means in concrete terms is more and better ways to get to where you need to be, a lot of economic opportunity and jobs that come with it, and the competitiveness that America needs to succeed on the global stage. Most of these updates obviously are for the future, but is there anything we might be able to see or benefit from in a year, let's say? Yeah, I mean, the, for example, the dollars that we are able to get out to local communities trying to, let's say, improve transit, whether it's enhancing transit service or making it greener. Uh, a lot of transit authorities trying to get electric buses. Uh, we're also investing in electric school buses right now. You know, these are things that take pollution out of the air. They can help uh, reduce congestion and get cars off the road, uh, but also just road improvements. There's so many bro- roads and bridges that need work. Uh, mayors, as I used to be a mayor, have a list, usually the length of their arm of things they would do tomorrow if they could. Well, now we have the dollars to help support those projects that are in many cases ready to go. People are concerned that the benefits of this infrastructure bill might not go to their area or neighborhood. And how are you going to make sure the benefits of this bill are distributed equitably? One of the things I love about this bill is it really covers the entire country. Every state, every territory is uh, going to see a benefit from this, partly because this goes into the road funding and bridge funding formulas that that we work with every state on. But also there's kind of a hundred percent doctrine in a lot of the elements of this bill. For example, the president said, we're going to get rid of a hundred percent of the lead service lines that take water to our kids. That means wherever you live, you know that this bill is going to help you live free of fear about that lead affecting your your child or your family. Same thing with the internet. Uh, We're committing to making sure 100% of Americans have access to fast and affordable internet. So it doesn't matter uh, whether you live in the middle of a big city or in one of the most remote areas of the country, we are going to work to make sure that you get connected affordably and efficiently. And from a transportation perspective, uh, you know, every single place that I go, every big and small community I go to has some major infrastructure need. And it can be anything from sidewalks to subways. These are exactly the kinds of things that we can do so much more of with the biggest investments we've seen in, again, generations provided by this bill. Secretary Buttigieg, thanks for your time. Thank you. 2022 is fast approaching, and with a new year comes new experiences. Get a head start with help from TravelZoo. They work with industry experts to get their members the best deals on things to do, see, and explore. Whether you're thinking locally or internationally, they'll send you a handpicked list of ideas, from spa days and outdoor adventures to river cruises and resort stays. Visit TravelZoo.com to sign up for free. That's T-R-A-V-E-L-Z-O-O.com. Elon Musk is the subject of a new controversy. Elon Musk insulted Oregon Democratic Senator Ron Wyden. Elon Musk. Elon Musk being sued for tweeting. Elon Musk. You tweet a lot. I I use my tweets to express myself. (laughs) Who are you inspired by? Well, Kanye West, obviously. (laughs) Where to begin? It feels like the world's second richest or first richest man on any given day keeps popping up in the headlines. His tweets alone move markets, spark lawsuits, and political debates. Still, talking all Elon all the time can be tiring. So here's our skim on what you actually need to know in 60 seconds. Okay, actually a little more than 60 seconds. Musk's two main businesses, Tesla and SpaceX, are crushing it. SpaceX just delivered a third rocket of astronauts to the International Space Station, proving it can totally fill NASA's shoes. 
Tesla, meanwhile, keeps getting huge orders from big businesses, and the future of electric vehicles has never looked brighter. That success has increased Musk's cred as a business icon, but he's more than that. Thanks to his personality and his huge social media following, he's also a cultural icon capable of influencing how the public talks about everything, from taxes to whether we should all relocate to Mars. And a few weeks ago, Musk waded into another debate, challenging a claim from the UN's World Food Program that if he gave up just 2% of his wealth, it could solve world hunger. Musk basically said, if you can actually prove that, the money's yours. Taking his bait, the World Food Program dropped a plan this week describing how it would hypothetically spend nearly $7 billion. Whether that's good enough for Musk is TBD, but he does have some extra cash on hand. He recently created a Twitter poll asking if he should sell 10% of his Tesla stock. And after over 3 million votes, the survey said, yeah, do it. So he started selling. Elon Musk has been selling shares again. The Tesla CEO has sold more than $1.1 billion. Elon Musk has sold even more shares in Tesla. $6.9 billion in stock. And that sparked yet another debate about whether he was paying enough in taxes. And when Senator Bernie Sanders tweeted that the super rich need to pay their fair share, Musk responded, quote, I keep forgetting that you're still alive. <laughs> On one hand, funny zing there. But also, like a lot of stories involving Musk, there's something bigger going on here. Like, what does it mean when one of the world's wealthiest people doesn't stick to their corporate talking points, but in fact, does the exact opposite? Or what does it mean for civic discourse when he normalizes speaking rudely to politicians? Or should the UN have to beg for Elon Musk's money? One thing's for sure, Musk's inability to censor himself has a lot of people applauding his honesty, but has a lot of people wondering if he deserves to have the mic at all. How'd we do? Want us to skim another topic from the week's news? Tweet us your suggestion using the hashtag skimthis. November is Native American Heritage Month, and it seems like the White House is taking notice. This week, President Biden held a two-day summit with tribal nations, where he committed to a series of executive actions, from investing $13 billion in tribal lands to an executive order promising to help combat violence faced by Native Americans. But it also seems like the White House is committed to unveiling the past. Back in June, Secretary of the Interior Deb Holland made a promise to investigate the boarding schools that many Native American children were forced to attend during the 19th and 20th centuries. Kids were separated from their parents, banned from speaking their native languages, and forcibly converted to Christianity. Dozens of children died in some of these schools. By 1969, a Senate committee published a damning report calling these schools a, quote, national tragedy that failed to adequately shelter, feed, or educate children. But exactly what happened at these schools is still largely unknown. Just this week, researchers helped uncover the names of dozens of children who died at just one school, called the Genoa Indian Industrial School in Nebraska. To learn more, we called up Susanna Haliga, an assistant professor of Native American history at the University of Nebraska-Omaha and one of the co-directors of the project documenting what happened at the Genoa School. Thanks for joining us. Can you explain what happened at the Genoa School and also what we learned this week? The school opened in 1884 and it closed in 1934. So we're looking at a span of about 50 years. It started off as a boarding school for the Pawnee tribe. 
and you had tribes from the surrounding areas that were forced to attend that school. We've been in the process since the summer of gathering this information. So it's all coming together slowly. Currently, we have about 87 student deaths that we have found so far of students that passed away at Genoa. And it's through various reasons from illnesses to train accidents, shootings, drownings. I think a lot of people might be surprised to know that families were forced to send their children to these schools. Could you just talk a little bit about that history? Let's say by, you know, 1900s, about 78% of all Native children were sent to boarding schools. People think of schools or boarding schools, you might think of it in a good sense, but these are really institutions that were part of an assimilation policy from the government to take children, rip children away from their families and place them in these boarding schools so they wouldn't have an attachment to family, they wouldn't have an attachment to land or to their culture or to their languages. And it was mandatory for students to attend school. If you look at the education that was provided for Native American students, only half the day was to be considered an educational part of the day. The other half of the day, they had to work. Children basically had to grow the food, you know, cook the food, sew the clothes. They worked hard, woke up five o'clock in the morning, go to bed nine or 10 o'clock at night. They were really used as hard labor. And you mentioned these schools were set up as part of an assimilation program. Can you explain what that program was meant to do and why the federal government created it? When you look at boarding school history, you see the word, the Indian problem. You had settler residents looking at the Indian problem as Native American, their poverty, their dependence on government. But actually, really, you ha- it was the government and the settlers that were impoverishing the Indians. It was considered a problem. So how to get Indian people from complaining about wanting to have their land back or having their sovereignty or wanting to maintain their unique languages and cultures, the government came up with a way of taking the children away from their families and doing it as young as they could. The idea was to kill the Indian and save the man. Why Is this part of United States history unknown to a lot of people? When we talk about so many topics such as boarding schools, students always ask, how come we were never taught this in schools? Native American history is really difficult and it's hard and it's ugly and it's very political. And there's a lot of dark secrets there, I guess, that it might be easier to bury away than to reconcile and come to terms with. And I'm so thankful that Deb Holland has opened up this investigation because it is, it's time, you know, no matter how ugly a history looks like, if it belongs to us, then we have to come to terms with it. Thanksgiving is next week. And when we think back on last year's holidays, when we were told not to travel, gather with family, and that we had to make the turkey ourselves, it brought back some bleak memories. 
So last year we had a Zoom Thanksgiving with most of us and my parents and I did get together outside and share some food, sitting outside, shivering with our coats on. That's Dr. Amber D'Souza, an infectious disease epidemiologist at Johns Hopkins. This year, she's ready to leave her winter coat behind. This year, there's going to be 10 of us around the table and we're going to sleep over inside in each other's houses, sharing meals. We're going to be unmasked and not distancing. We are all vaccinated, the 10 of us that are getting together. And it's just, I'm so looking forward to waking up early and sharing a cup of coffee and staying up late, playing cards and laughing and just being together as a family. Both Dr. D'Souza and Dr. Celine Gounder, an infectious disease specialist at NYU, have come on the show before to update us on the state of the pandemic. So we asked both of them, now that we're in a different stage of this thing, how are you keeping things safe this holiday season? Dr. Gounder told us, number one is obvious, but it's make sure everyone who can get vaxxed actually does. Everybody in the family is vaccinated with the exception of my two-year-old niece, who is not yet eligible. My six-year-old niece just got her first dose of Pfizer vaccine and will get her second dose before the Christmas holiday. So basically everybody except the two-year-old will be vaccinated. And Dr. D'Souza told us, have conversations with your friends and family about what everyone is comfortable with, especially if people are flying in. Talking about what everybody's doing always helps, and we have good communication. The week before we get together, we make sure that we've Talk to each other about wearing masks if we're going inside settings, grocery stores, restaurants, stores, just as risk prevention. If people are flying to get together, that's always, you know, good to talk about risk reduction while you're while you're out and busy inside areas. Not to mention, if there's someone showing up for Thanksgiving who's immunocompromised, Dr. Gounder told us there are a few extra steps you can take to be cautious. You know, when you're around family and friends and you're eating and drinking, you probably don't want to wear a mask. And so to the extent possible, do things outdoors. You can make it fun, do it around a fire pit outdoors, for example. If you're indoors, open windows and doors as much as you're able, as much as the weather allows. You can buy HEPA, H-E-P-A, air filtration units and put a couple of those around the house or around the areas where people are going to be gathering together. And then have some rapid tests on hand. If you can test the day of before you hang out with people and your test comes back negative, even if you do have an infection, it's likely to be a very low-level infection that's not going to be a risk to others. So those antigen tests are really very helpful for identifying who is infectious to other people. And their final piece of advice, and this one is really nice to hear, is to enjoy the holiday season. There is something just really special about spending the holidays, spending Christmas with little kids and to be able to do that with my six-year-old niece, my two-year-old niece and, and open presents together on Christmas morning and just, you know, share those family traditions together is really important. And we definitely missed out on that last year. We're really excited to be able to do that together this year. Okay, doctor's orders. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway, and Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the Skim's other podcasts. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. 
And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9to5ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.